I have a really fun guest speaker that I get to introduce this morning. Um, and uh, who we've got with us is Professor uh, Dr. Sung Chan Ra, who is the Milton uh, Engbritson Associate Professor of Church Growth and Evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. So he knows kind of our Moody students well. Um, Professor Ra has written two books that are actually award-winning books. Uh, one of them is called, um, let me just read you the titles. Uh, the newest one, The Next Evangelicalism, Freeing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity. And then Many Colors, which was Cultural Intelligence for a Changing Church. And then he's also the co-editor of Honoring the Generations, Learning with Asian North American Congregations. Uh, Dr. Ra is one of the leading scholars in America, Christian evangelical scholars, on the theology of race and multiculturalism, um, has a lot to say about the shift of the church to the global south and, and different kinds of things with urban ministry that way. Um, and so it's kind of fun to be able to learn from him. A couple other things. He serves on the board of World Vision, Sojourners, uh, and the Christian Community Development Association, CCDA, Evangelicals for Justice, and the Catalyst, uh, Catalyst Leadership Center. Uh, he's really active around the country and speaking into a lot of leadership contexts. Uh, he was a church planner back in Cambridge before he moved to Chicago, uh, and he, he goes around the country speaking. He and his wife, Sue, who teaches special education, have two children, uh, a son and a daughter. And so uh, it's kind of with great pleasure that I get to welcome Professor Ra up this morning to speak on um, something I'm incredibly excited about is the Book of Lamentations. So if you would give a warm Antioch welcome to Professor Sung Chan Ra. Well, thank you for uh, a very warm welcome and the chance to worship with you this morning. Uh, what a wonderful church, chance to worship with a wonderful, wonderful church. This is the first church that I've ever been to where your pastoral care pastor is also the head of security. So this is a, an amazing, amazing church because that's a great combination to have the pastoral care pastor be the head of security. Um, I've heard a lot about this church and your pastor and the work that you're doing and things like the Justice Conference and the intern program and the good work that's happening here in, of all places, Bend, Oregon. Uh, so that's very exciting that people would leave Chicago with all its wonderful foods and people and come to Bend, Oregon. That's, there's something amazing must be happening here in order for that to take place. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful that I get a chance to share with you. And I want to share with you about some of the stuff that God has been placing upon my heart and the things that I've been writing about. Um, and for the last year and a half or so, I've been working on a commentary on the book of Lamentations. Uh, because academics, I don't know if you know this about academics, our goal is to sell as few books as possible. And I figured if I write a book on Lamentations, that's going to do the trick. Nobody's going to buy a book on Lamentations. How many of you have actually read the book of Lamentations? All right. You're lying. Come on. <laughs> Seriously, that's fantastic. Lamentations is one of those books that a lot, not as many Christians have heard about or read. Uh, it comes right after the book of Hesitations if you're looking for it in your Bible. Um, it's a wonderful book, however, but something in our culture, American culture, tends to kind of chafe against the themes of the book of Lamentations. There are elements of the book of Lamentations that make us uncomfortable, that make us think about um, not so much about the goodness of God, but maybe the, the judgment of God. So I want to talk today about the book of Lamentations. We're going to look at Lamentations chapter 1. I'm going to give you a little bit of background of what's going on in this book and what it teaches us about what it means to be the church in the world today, particularly as the American evangelical church in the world today. 
A few, um, uh, about a year ago, my uh, school gave me a sabbatical, and I was able to spend a year away from my, uh, my school and do further studies down in North Carolina. And when I came back after a year away, I, we took the whole family down there, and then we moved back to Chicago. When we came back after a year away, I realized that there was a lot of mail that had accumulated. I mean, lots of mail. I mean, if you go away for even a week at a time, you know the mail that piles up. Well, my office, my entire front, my desk was covered with mail. So I'm kind of going through, going through all the garbage and going through all the stuff that I need to keep, keep, and I put a pile of trash away. And then I stumble across this very intriguing DVD. Uh, it, it caught me by surprise what the DVD said, because the cover of the DVD actually said, the poor you will not have with you. Now, as a seminary professor, I'm always intrigued when people take the Bible out of context and twist the words of Scripture. So I decided to take a little closer look at this DVD. I open it up, and it talks about how the American church is going to stop poverty in this generation. And it really goes on to talk about it's the role of the Western church. It's the role of the American church to end poverty and that we will do it and therefore we will turn the words of Scripture around and say the poor we will not have with you always. Now I looked at this DVD and it was a, very, a, a pretty well-known uh, organization in American Christianity. I looked at this DVD and I began to ask the question, what is it about American churches that, that makes us think that we are so special and unique that we're the ones in charge of fixing all the world's problems? What's the mindset that enters into American Christians or Americans in general that says that it is our responsibility to be the problem solvers of the world and that world hunger... Now, please don't get me wrong. I am not saying we want to sustain and keep world hunger. I'm just saying that there might be something a little bit problematic, especially as believers of Scripture that we think we have the answers to everybody else's problems when it comes to things like world hunger. And that we, the American church in particular, Americans in particular, have the responsibility to solve everybody else's problems through this kind of triumphalistic problem-solving approach. I think what was missing in this type of scenario that I, th I see developing in American Christianity is the absence of humility, is the absence of lament. What I see instead is an American triumphalism, a Christian triumphalism that says that we as human beings, as the human church, will be able to solve the world's problems. And it's done almost without the presence of God. It's almost done without the humility that's required in understanding the suffering of Jesus on the cross. We jump to a success story without dealing with the struggles that lead to that success. So I want to talk to you about the book of Lamentations. And I want to introduce to you some of the themes that occur in the book of Lamentations that I think challenges our presuppositions about our role in the world and our responsibility to be the problem solvers of the world. Let's take a look at Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 and following. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Lamentations chapter 1. Verse 1 tells us, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. The context of the book of Lamentation is pretty basic that many of us might already know. The nation of Israel had once been an amazing great superpower. In fact, at one point, it was the great power of its time. It, uh, under the leadership of King David, it had attained and achieved a military superiority over the nations around it. And then his son Solomon was a great economic leader. And that uh, great leadership of Solomon was able to achieve great economic stature for the nation of Israel. So during the reigns of David and Solomon, it was unquestioned that Israel was this amazing power, powerful nation, a superpower of its time. 
But we know that the story doesn't end there with the kingship of David and Solomon. We know that the subsequent kings of Israel and of Judah were actually pretty bad kings. So bad, in fact, they led their people into the worship of idols and false worship. And so because the people of God had turned away from the worship of the one true God and now were beginning to follow idols and false prophets and false, uh, false gods, God had to punish them. And so this once great nation that had been blessed by God was now under siege and was being attacked. And so God sent judgment upon his people for their disobedience, for following idols rather than following the one true God. So what we see in Lamentations chapter 1 verse 2 is the result of this disobedience by the people of God. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. The nation of Israel was now wiped out. What happened is that the marauders from northern kingdoms had come. The Assyrians and the Babylonians. And they came and they wiped out the entire nation. In fact, the only city left of Israel was the city of Jerusalem, the capital city. And the city of Jerusalem was walled sufficiently enough that they thought they were going to be protected from the onslaught of the, of the northern uh, powers. And they did for a while. But the, the Babylonians and Assyrians essentially kind of wiped them out. And so the, nation, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem, after a long siege, was devastated. So there was nothing left of the people of God in the, in the, uh, in the area of, uh, of Israel. So what you saw was these northern marauders coming and just completely wiping out the nation of Israel. These were brutal people. They would come through and they would burn all the fields to make sure that that crop was destroyed. But they weren't satisfied with just one year of crops being destroyed. They wanted to destroy the entire agrarian society. So they went and they salted the fields so that what had once been a lush landscape was now becoming a barren desert. So a land that had once been flowing with milk and honey was increasingly becoming a desert because these marauders were so angry at Israel and especially Jerusalem for holding out for so long, they needed to punish Israel and they needed to punish Jerusalem. So at the end of this siege, as the northern marauders came and wiped out this entire nation, the people of God are left, again, as it says here, bitterly weeping, no one to comfort. They were alone. They were isolated. And they had been sent now into exile. Um, the people of God were, uh, were, were not just defeated, but all the able-bodied men were sent away to Babylon. And just the women and the children and the feeble were left behind. And so the entire society has been devastated. So think about this for a moment with me. They've lost their homes. They've lost their nation. They've lost their king. They've lost their identity. They've lost their family, their homes. Everything that made them the people of God has been taken away. And instead they've been sent away into exile. Dwells not in their own homeland but in a faraway place with no resting place, as verse 3 tells us. And now they're in the midst of maybe the worst point in Israel's history. Now it is at this moment that we encounter the book of Lamentations. And Lamentations offered by God or spoken by the prophets on behalf of God is the attempt to recognize that there is an answer to suffering. There is a way we should respond to suffering. Now, let's pause for a moment and think about the alternatives. Lamentations is one way we respond to suffering. But there were also two other possibilities. There were three potential responses. The third is to lament. But the first two are also options for the nation of Israel. One is to disengage from the world and say, we're done with it. 
This world is too hard for us. We don't want to have anything to do with the suffering that's out there. Disengage from what's going on in the world. And the second option is to revert back to their idolatrous ways and begin to follow the idols. So let's look at the first option that Israel was confronted with in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 and 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those who came, uh, uh, who were carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Notice some interesting things here. First of all, the context is the people of God have been sent away into exile. They are now in Babylon. Now remember and think with me what Babylon represents to the people of Israel. This is the center of all evil. This is the center of all that is wrong with the world, the city of Babylon. And that's the city to which they have been carried away into. And God says to them through the prophet Jeremiah, don't run away from the world. Go into that place, marry, have children, build homes, and increase in that place, in that city, and seek the peace and prosperity, verse 7, of the city to which I have carried you, which is Babylon. Again, think of the irony of that particular passage. Whenever in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms, you hear the phrase, seek the peace of, what's the city associated with it? Seek the peace of Jerusalem, because that's God's city, Jerusalem. But in this passage, it says, not seek the peace and prosperity of Jerusalem, but seek the peace and prosperity of, of all places, Babylon. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. The temptation for the people of God, once they encounter suffering, is to hide out, is to say we want to have nothing to do with a world that is evil, a world that is against us. We're going to bury our head in the sand and just do our own thing because the world is unjust. The world is evil. It's a wicked place. So let's just hide out among ourselves. But Jeremiah chapter 29 gives us the opposite response when, he, when Yahweh says through the prophet Jeremiah, no, seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have sent you. Now, this is an important lesson for us when we look at the role of, of, uh, of, of the church in our culture. In, uh, and just a quick history lesson to put this into context. In the 19th century, if you look at American Christianity's role in larger society, it was a very positive one. Timothy Smith, who was a historian for many years at Johns Hopkins University, says that every major social reform movement in America in the 19th century was spearheaded by Christians, who out of this wonderful fire uh, by, of revival that hit them, said, we don't want to just have individual lives change. We want to change the world. So out of this incredible desire to serve the Lord that comes out of this personal revival, they go out and say, well, we want to stop slavery because there's an injustice in the world we need to confront. We want the women to have the right to vote. We want to make sure that there are child labor laws that protect our children. One of the more poignant images on this is the great revivalist Charles Finney, who is credited with inventing the altar call, which everybody uses now. But the altar call we use now is when you have a revival meeting or an evangelistic crusade, you ask people to come up to the front, and a counselor will pray for you, and you become saved when you come up to the front. 
the, uh, Charles Finney who invented the altar call, that was not his point of view. His perspective was, if you become a Christian, you've already become a Christian in your seat. But I'm asking you to come up to the altar, come up to the front of the sanctuary so that I can get your name and, uh, not number, there was no phones back then. Let me get your name and contact information so that we can enlist you for the abolitionist movement. Charles Finney was one of the staunchest and most strong advocates of ending slavery. And so evangelism occurred in the seats. Discipleship occurred in the front of the sanctuary. And at the front of the sanctuary, you not only have become a Christian, you were, becoming, you were going to become a follower of Jesus by becoming a part of the anti-slavery movement. That's how closely tied evangelism and discipleship were with acts of justice and reform. And that's what characterized 19th century Christianity. The desire and attempt to change the world because your lives had been so transformed. That's why bars were closing down, that these house of ill repute, they were closing down, and society as a whole was being transformed because Christians had been set on fire by God. Now, something interesting, however, happens in the 20th century. And a Christianity that had been so actively engaged in confronting injustice in the 19th century, now in the 20th century, has what historians now call the Great Reversal. David Moberg, an historian, says that in the 20th century, we saw this great reversal. Where in the 19th century, evangelism and justice were linked because they are two sides of the same coin. But in the 20th century, you have a divorce of evangelism and justice. And people began to separate the two out. And some say we want to do just personal evangelism. And others say we want to do just social justice. And the two camps become further and further apart. A lot of that had to do with those who were proponents of personal evangelism seeing the wickedness in the world in their eyes, seeing the secular humanism that was arising and saying exactly what the people of God were tempted to do in the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, we want to have nothing to do with the world out there. Because the world is becoming increasingly secular, humanistic. They're teaching evolution in the schools. They're teaching science in the schools that seem to contradict the Bible. They're teaching philosophies that seem to contradict the Bible. Humanistic, secular philosophies. So Christians said, the world, um, the American society is so evil that we want to just run away, disengage, and hide out within our own subculture. So in the 20th century, you begin to see the formation of Christian subculture that disengage with the larger culture. Now that's when you start seeing Christian colleges because you don't want your kids to go to these evil secular Ivy League schools. They're learning evil secular things at the Harvards and the Yales. And so we send our kids to, I won't name the schools that are here probably. I won't, so we send them to our good Christian schools where they will learn good Christian things rather than the evil secular things in the secular schools. Or we will have good Christian journals and magazines and newspapers because the secular magazines and periodicals and journals are evil. We will have good Christian music. And I use the word good very loosely. We will have Christian music <laughs> that will sound suspiciously a lot like secular music. But we don't want people to listen to secular music. So we will have Christian versions of the secular culture. We will even have good Christian t-shirts that look like evil secular t-shirts, but with a Christianized version of it. I remember in high school, this is way back in the day, but my, my uh, friends at high school used to wear these uh, t-shirts 
that were essentially beer labels. I don't know how many of you remember these t-shirts. So there was like a Heineken beer label people would wear. And then there was one that was very popular, was Budweiser, King of the Beers, right? That was a very popular beer label that people would wear. A good Christian looked at that and said, uh, we can't do that. We can't wear beer labels. So they kept the label. They just changed the word Budweiser to Jesus and beers to Jews. So now you have t-shirts that says, Jesus, King of the Jews, but it's on a beer label. So it looks like a beer label, but it just says something different. So you're beginning to see these Christianized versions in uh, American secular society. We just have a different spin on it. Again, the, the music is another example of this. But what this does is it shows a hostile relationship to society. It shows a disengagement. And one of the ways this is exemplified is in the architecture that emerges in the... Uh, I'm sorry, the, the graphics aren't working too well on this one, uh, th that emerges in the 20th century. So I don't know about in this area, but in the Midwest, buildings that were built in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s have very similar architecture. They have the sanctuary with kind of a slanted roof, a little bit of an arch, and then the wood beams kind of buttress the ceiling. How many of you have seen church buildings that look like that? Yeah, you're kind of this high sanctuary, uh, lofted ceiling that has this kind of arch. Well, one of the questions that I asked was, why would we build church buildings like that? It's actually extraordinarily inefficient. Because in a place like Chicago where it gets really cold and you turn on the heaters, where does all the heat go? Into the rafters, right? So now you've got people freezing to death in the bottom on a January day and all the heat is up there. So what we have to do is we have to install ceiling fans to push the hot air down. And then charismatics can't come to the church because they can't raise their hands because they're going to get them cut off by the ceiling fan. So you have a highly inefficient structure and system. So you look up at this thing and say, why would churches be built this way? This is the dominant form of church architecture in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and 60s. And what you're seeing up there is if you turn the church building upside down, what are you looking at? you're looking at the bottom of a boat. And where in the Bible do you see boats? Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. So you have built a building that says to the world, we are Noah's Ark. We are Noah's Ark. What are you saying to the world when you say your church is Noah's Ark? We don't care what happens to you out there. You can be destroyed because you deserve the judgment waters of God. As long as we're safe, in Noah's Ark, as long as we've got our animals two by two, as long as we have our good Christian music and our good Christian t-shirts, we are fine in Noah's Ark. We don't care about what's going on in the world out there. Now, how do you do evangelism from Noah's Ark? Yeah, you usually don't. Maybe occasionally you'll throw out a lifeline to a family member or a friend you see floating by. Oh, there's a Uncle Joe. Let's throw a lifeline to him. There's my, uh, maybe not my neighbor. But then you throw out a lifeline occasionally to one or two people to bring them onto Noah's Ark. And then once they're on Noah's Ark, they have to abide by your rules of the, the subculture of Noah's Ark. So what you do is you say to the world, we don't care about you. We want to have nothing to do with you. And that again is the temptation you find in Jeremiah chapter 29 where you say, we want to have nothing to do with the world. We just want to be safe in Noah's Ark. We want to disengage. And that's why in Jeremiah 29, when the words of Scripture comes out, do not do this. Do not do this. Seek the peace and prosperity, not of Jerusalem in this case, but of Babylon, the evil city that I have sent you into, 
Seek the peace and prosperity of that city that I have sent you into. There's a second temptation that arises, however. First is to disengage, but the second temptation is actually to over-engage. Over-engage to the point that it's hard to distinguish between what is the church and what is the world. So another form of architecture emerges in the 1970s and 1980s, where churches begin to look like this. They begin to look like movie theaters. They begin to look like malls. I was at a church in Virginia, and the guy was showing me a tour of this mega church in the Virginia area. And I'm walking through, and there's a little welcoming kiosk, and there's a little donut shop, and then there's a little t-shirt shop, and there's a little CD shop, and then there's a, another clothier shop where they sell boxer shorts with the church's name on them. And then you kind of go right down the line, and you see all these little shops. And then off to the corner is the nondescript building room, which is the movie theater, which of course is the sanctuary. So what we've done in the 1970s forward and the new form of architecture is to actually want to be so much like the world that we actually are like the world. So you have one perspective, which is we're going to disengage and hide out in Noah's Ark. And then we have the other perspective said we're going to just buy into everything that the world sells us and just become a part of the consumeristic consumption culture and just do the church the way a business would do church. Do church the way that a, a marketing major would do church. Do church the way that a Fortune 500 company would do church. And at that moment, we've yielded to the second temptation I talked about earlier, which is found in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 8 and 9. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. The word prophets and diviners, but particularly the word diviners that's found here, is a reference to kind of the magic formula of idolatry. Again, the idols were the culture of their time. So when uh, Jeremiah warns against this idolatry and prophets, false prophets and diviners, he's saying don't buy into the surrounding culture. Because what the surrounding culture would do is they will offer you a way of doing things that is clearly not of God. So the idolatry is now a temptation once again to the people of God. Again, the reflection of the secular culture. There's something I want to explain about idolatry. Idolatry was effective in drawing more people and attracting more people because in some sense it works. Here's how idolatry works. Idolatry is a vending machine. You go to worship at an idol, and the person there says, if you do the following three things, you will get what you're looking for. You want good crops this year. We'll offer this kind of sacrifice and this kind of sacrifice, and you will get good crops. It is a very simple formula. It is a spiritual vending machine. You put a particular money in, you type in the right formula, and out comes your bag of Cheetos. So idolatry was always a temptation to the people of Israel. Because Yahweh worship doesn't work like that. Yahweh worship never works in a formulaic way. You put money in, and you still don't get money back. You put all this effort into being a good Christian, and guess what? You're still struggling day to day. Yahweh worship operated in a fundamentally different way than idolatry, which was such a temptation to the people of Israel. Because the magic formulas are always the easiest thing to latch on to. And I think one of the ways that we've kind of become a part of that magic formula approach is that we look for the quick and easy answers to solve our church's problems. 
Now, as someone who studies the church, as someone who reflects on elements of the church, I see this over and over and over again in the books that most of us end up reading about how to live our Christian lives. Without recognizing that Christian life is, is a, it's a, it's, it's a trial. It's an ongoing journey. It's a lifelong journey. And just because you have a purpose in your life doesn't mean your life is going to be all hunky-dory. Or just because you do the seven things you can become a better you doesn't mean you are actually going to become a better you. Or that you take the seven steps that it takes to grow a church, your church actually might not grow. So what we've done in American Christianity in particular is we've looked for the formulas, the magic formulas that will solve our spiritual questions, that will solve our church's problems. So that's how we view the the, 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 the problems of the world through the lens of problem solving. And we believe if only we put our American know-how and ingenuity and knowledge and education to work, we can solve every problem in the world. And that goes back to what I said at the beginning about the way we view poverty as just another problem to solve with good old American ingenuity and know-how. Just drop a couple of packages of all this American know-how and overnight poverty will end. What we've done is we have imposed an American cultural reflection over and above the biblical reflection, which actually says sometimes life is more of a struggle. Sometimes the answers don't come that easily and don't come that quickly. And that is why the third option is the only option that actually I find to be true in Scripture, to be worth following. And that is the option that uh, Jeremiah offers in the book of Lamentations. That is the option of lament. So when suffering comes, the first option is, let's run away from it. Let's have nothing to do with it. The second option is, well, let's just do what the world does and try to solve the problems by using the world's formulas. Neither of those options are what Jeremiah ultimately takes. Instead, he enters into lament. He laments over suffering. And in our day and age, we don't know what it means to lament. There was a study done by uh, Denise Hopkins, a, a professor at Wesley Seminary, and she looked at um, the way the litur liturgical churches, like the Anglican Church, the Catholic Church, uh, the Episcopalian Church, they have prayer books where you go through different books of the Bible and you read different books of the Bible. She found that consistently, psalms that lamented, that talked about suffering, were conspicuously absent from these prayer books. The book of Lamentations generally doesn't show up at all except for the one positive verse in chapter 3. That will show up. But the rest of the book of Lamentations does not make an appearance in most American liturgical books because we don't know how to deal with suffering. Instead of, well, our tendency is to run away or hide from it rather than say, what does it mean for God's people to stay and to lament in the midst of suffering? I'll give you a quick illustration of this. Um, my name, Sung Chan Ra, um, is actually, I actually uh, changed my name legally a few years ago. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? When you changed your name to Sung Chan Ra. Yeah, I changed my name legally because uh, when I came to the United States from Korea when I was about six years old, my parents spelled my name on my green card as S-U-N-G, middle name C-H-A-N, last name R-A-H. But over the years, when I went through elementary school, junior high school, I just, for a number of different reasons, I changed the spelling of my name to S-O-O-N-G hyphen C-H-A-N as my first name. And that's what I used on all my papers. But legally, I was still S-U-N-G space C-H-A-N. 
So I became a naturalized citizen in my sophomore year in college. So I go through all the paperwork, I stand in line, and I, do, I answer all the questions, and I go take all the tests. And then as I'm going through this process, they tell me at the last stage, well, we're about to issue your naturalization certificate to say that you're a citizen of the United States. And you actually have the option of changing your name legally at this moment. And the, the agent that's processing this may looking at me like, you want to change your name, right? Nobody wants to go through life with a name like Sung Chan Ra. Nobody wants to do that. So she's asking me, please change your name. So I say, oh, yes, I've been dying to change my name. It's a great opportunity to legally change my name without going through all the paperwork. Could you please spell my name S-O-O-N-G hyphen C-H-A-N as my first name? And she looks at me like, I was expecting like John Ra or Peter or Mike, anything but just another spelling of your name. So what happened is I had the choice legally to keep my name. Now, it was not just simply a name that I like or whatever way you look at your name, but it was a chance for me to keep my heritage, my history, the fact that my parents gave me this name and there's a meaning to that name, and the fact that as an American citizen, I can have a name that comes from another country and that I want to retain that heritage and I want that to be a part of my identity, not just as an American citizen, which I'm proud to be, but also as a Korean American and that my name reflects that. And I had the choice and the option to do that. But what that triggers for me is to reflect on the fact that there are people groups in America, particularly people group, that was not allowed to maintain their name and their heritage and history. The African community, diaspora community, African American community, were yanked out of their homes in Africa, kidnapped, and sent to the coastal towns in, 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 East, uh, in Western Africa. Force marched across the continent to these coastal castles, chained up in these castles with minimal food and water. Their identity, their tribal identity, their family identity were taken away because they were stripped of their clothing. They were stripped of their culture. They were even taken away from families, men on one part of the castle, women on another part of the castle, children kind of shipped off somewhere else. This whole effort of the slave trade was to remove identity from this people group. And so they, the, the, the Africans chained to the castle, names taken away, cultures taken away, families taken away. And then the ship comes and, and all the slaves are, are put onto the, into the bottom of the ship. And as the ship is crossing across, they never see the top. They're actually underneath in the cargo area. And they're not seated. They are lying side by side by side by side, lying down, chained across the bottom of the ship. Occasionally, they will be allowed to come up to the front. And at that moment, the slaves would, many of them would jump over the side of the ship. It is well documented historically that sharks would follow these slave ships because they knew somebody would be coming over and they would have an easy meal. And then they would run, for, uh, run try to make it to the edge of the sh ship, but most of them wouldn't make it. Many of them were on hunger fast because they refused to eat because they knew what lay ahead of them. And what they had was they, have, they actually still have some of these implements. They have what's called iron jaws that forced the mouth open so they could force food down the throat because they didn't want to lose these lives as precious cargo. So the ship comes up to a port in, in the Americas. And it happens to be a Sunday, and the slaves are disembarking. And in the background, you hear the church bells. The church bells are ringing, and that's one of the sounds that greets the African slaves. 
And then at the same time at the port, the auction bell is ringing. And the auction bell and the church bell begin to ring in tandem with one another to show when you come to America, you will have this Christian presence, but you will also be a slave. And the good Christian folk that have been hearing these church bells hear the auction bell and now come down to the auction block to purchase human life. They obtain human life and again, names have been taken away, cultures have been taken away, identity, family, all of that has been taken away and then they're purchased by these good Christian families who take them back home to work their plantations. And this pattern occurs for hundreds of years where good Christian Americans decide to purchase human life and take away the rich heritage and culture. So when I think about the fact that I could, in a silly way, keep my Korean name, I also need to lament the fact that I'm part of a history that wiped out names, cultures, stories, families of an entire people group here in the United States. And it, it disturbs me when we are so easily and quickly wanting to say, let's just get over the race problem. Because what it does is it has problem solved the race problem. And it has not lamented the race, pro the race problem. Do you see the difference there? You see the difference between, let's just go on with it. We figured it out. The race issue is done with. We don't need to deal with that history. Whereas in the Bible, you see not that kind of quick, follow the formula and get it over with. But what does it mean for God's people to dwell in the midst of suffering and lament with those that have suffered? I'll close with this illustration and analogy. Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite theologians. And he talks about the difference between those who have good things and those who do not have good things and a theology that emerges out of these two different groups. The theology of the haves and the theology of the have-nots. The haves develop something called a theology of celebration. The have-nots develop something called a theology of suffering. And the two can be categorized in this way. On the left-hand column is the theology of celebration. You have good things, so you manage and steward your good resources. The world to you is generally a good place. Life is already fairly healthy and whole. It's not, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's complete. God is a nurturer who's going to take care of you because you already have the good things and now you just want God to make sure you keep those good things. And because you have good things, you want to maintain the status quo. I mean, you can think about it in this kind of the, the Ben culture, right? You have good things here. You have perfect weather. Wonderful weather. You've got all these resources to enjoy yourself and to go out and to, and to enjoy the outdoors. You have, you have buildings that are just immaculate. I mean, these buildings are the cleanest buildings I've ever seen. Your streets, I could literally eat off the streets here in Bend. It is so immaculate here. So when you see the world, you probably see the world through the left-hand column. Because most of you, not all of you, but most of you, generally speaking, are living a healthy, whole, and complete life. And you want things to stay the same. You don't want to lose these advantages. You don't want your tax rates to go up. You don't want things to change around you because you live in a theology of celebration with these good things. But there's another theology that emerges that many of us might not be familiar with, and that's the theology of suffering. And that comes from those who, have, who don't have good things. And so they're in survival mode. The world is not a good place. It's an evil place. Life is not healthy and whole. 
It's precarious, and you need God to come and be a deliverer, a warrior to smite all the enemies. That's why sometimes you see this kind of schizophrenia in the Psalms, right? The Psalms, it says at one point, it says, living under the shadow of his wings, and you're safe and comfortable. And then the next minute, it comes, says something like, God, come and knock out the teeth of my enemies. So it's kind of, it's kind of a, a, a disruption there, just a juxtaposition. But that's because there are voices that speak up out of ce- uh, celebration, and there are voices that speak up out of suffering. And those who are in places of suffering say, we don't want things to stay the same. We want this injustice to stop. Let me give you an illustration for this. Let's go to uh, the most rich affluent area in the United States. Uh, Let's go to Beverly Hills 90210. And so we'll go to Beverly Hills 90210. We knock on uh, a door in one of these beautiful gated communities. We knock on the door and a 16-year-old answers the door. And the 16-year-old says, uh, we ask the 16-year-old, hey, we're taking a survey, and we want to find out what you think heaven is going to be like. And the 16-year-old says, oh, heaven is going to be a wonderful place. Tell us more. She's going to say, heaven is going to be a wonderful place because here on earth, I've got this dinky little 19-inch TV set. doesn't even have cable. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a 70-inch plasma with satellite hookup and surround sound. Here on earth, I have a Dell desktop. Dinky little thing, my parents bought at Costco. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Mac Airbook. Here on earth, I have a Toyota Yaris that I tool around in. Dinky little car. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Ferrari. Heaven's going to be a wonderful place. So she has a perception of heaven. Because she has good things on earth, heaven is just more of these good things in a kind of much larger uh, setting. Now let's talk to a different person. 16 years old, but she happens to live in Darfur, Sudan. We go to Darfur, and we go to one of those refugee encampments, and we talk to this 16-year-old, and we ask her, what do you think heaven is going to be like? My guess is she has a very different set of answers. She's going to say, heaven is nothing like what I have here on earth. Heaven is totally different than this earthly existence. Heaven is a place where my parents are still alive. They haven't been killed by the Janjaweed warriors. Heaven is a place where I don't worry about getting raped every single night of my life. Heaven is a place where there's actually food and water that's available every single day. Heaven is nothing like what I have here on earth. Now the truth is, both of them are right. Both of them have a glimpse of heaven. But the picture of heaven is incomplete unless you hear both sides of the story. The problem right now is that American Christianity is so much here that we think our job in dealing with justice and suffering is to go and dump all these wonderful things and dump it on those who don't have those things. And we think it is our job to take all this great resource and and ingenuity and know-how and education and just pile it on and dump it into the poor communities and then we can go back to our little safe places of celebration. What it does is it puts the gift on us and does not recognize the gift in the poorest communities. Does not recognize that there's a story that we don't have because we stay only in the place of celebration. Put it in this way in terms of understanding Christology. Jesus is not just the death on the cross. But Jesus is also the resurrection. If you're in a place of celebration, you don't know suffering. 
So you don't understand why Jesus would die on the cross. And if you study Western theology, the main topic of conversation is what happened on the cross. We want to find out and understand what's going on at the cross. But if you go to non-Western countries that have uh, financial and, and, and disasters and all of that, they know why Jesus died on the cross. Because they live the cross every single day of their lives. What they want to know is the power of the resurrection. The, the freedom that comes in Christ, the victory that comes in Christ. But what happens is all of this gets confused and our picture of Jesus is incomplete because we only get one side of the story. As a church that is seeking to live into the biblical value of justice, a church that is seeking to live into the biblical value of compassion for the poor and what we might call the very least of our brothers and sisters, please don't say that we have got all the answers that we want to dump on those who don't have the answers. But recognize that the gift that you have is to be able to play in a place of learning, even from those who are in the midst of suffering and lament. The story is told of many years ago of a Supreme Court justice that ends up at a church in Washington, D.C. He has just been appointed, and he is going to join this church and the people of that church are very excited that a Supreme Court justice has come into the church. Well, the, uh, the, the story that I read on the, on, on the internet was that there was also that same Sunday a Chinese laundryman that was joining the church. And so the church did a special thing where they invited all the newcomers to come up to the front. And the Chinese laundryman comes up to the front, stands to one side of the church to be received in the congregation. There are about 10 or 12 others who are also received in the church. But they come up and they stand on the other side of the front altar. And so you have the Chinese laundryman on one side and you got 10 or 12 middle class whites on the other side. Now the last person to be invited up was the Supreme Court Justice. And he comes up to the front and he stands right next to the Chinese laundryman. Now according to this story that I read on the internet, the whole point of that story according to this, uh, to this site was wasn't it so wonderful and kind of the Supreme Court Justice to lower and demean himself to stand next to the Chinese laundryman. Wasn't that Chinese laundryman so honored to be able to stand next to the Supreme Court justice? And when I read that story, I realized they got it wrong. They got the point of the story wrong. Because it was not that the Chinese laundryman was honored to stand next to the Supreme Court justice. It was that the Supreme Court justice got to stand next to one made in the image of God. Every day of his life, he struggled as an outsider, as one marginalized with no privilege in that society, who every day of his life was treated as an alien, as a foreigner, as an outsider. And yet on Sunday, he still came to worship God. So the gift was not the Chinese laundryman receiving to have the Supreme Court justice next to him. But the gift was to the Supreme Court justice who got to stand next to one made in the image of God. As a church that, generally speaking, comes out of the place of celebration, comes out of the place of abundance, when you encounter suffering and lament, know that that is a gift to this church. Know that you are receiving a gift because through those who lament and suffer, you encounter the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for the commitments of this church, the desire to serve you with all their hearts, 
the desire to seek after your truth and your justice. And I pray, Lord, that you would give wisdom to the leadership of this church to continue to follow after you, that your truth and your wisdom might continue to be embodied in this community. And I pray that not just the celebration of the good things, but an encounter with suffering would also occur, that the fullness of the gospel might be revealed here. In your name we pray.